This week's podcast is sponsored by Salesforce.org. Salesforce.org is the dedicated team at Salesforce that delivers technology to non-profits, educational institutions and philanthropic organisations so they can connect with others and do more good. Salesforce.org empowers higher education with its Education Cloud, a set of integrated solutions built on the world's number one CRM. In today's fast-moving world, leveraging technology is essential to deliver the personalised, proactive and continuous experiences each student expects. But how can institutions embrace digital transformation and how can they leverage technology to improve the student experience, achieve operational excellence and strengthen their relationships with the community they serve? With a desire to help the community find answers to these questions, Salesforce.org launched the Higher Ed Summit in the US eight years ago and has gathered thousands of higher ed professionals to share insights and connect with peers annually ever since. To better serve their growing community of education trailblazers in Europe, the team has launched a regional summit called the Higher Ed Summit Horizons. And this year, Salesforce.org invites every higher ed professional and institution leader to join the ranks in Paris on the 10th of October and be inspired by pioneers in higher ed digital transformation. From building brand awareness, transforming the applicant experience, enhancing student services, building lifelong alumni relationships, or managing change and optimising technology across the campus, you'll hear from pioneers who have paved the way for the future of higher education and have driven all kinds of innovations at their institutions. The EdTech podcast will be at the event, moderating a panel discussion and conducting interviews with those shaping higher education. Come and join us and have a chat. Register today at sfdc.co forward slash horizons 2019 using our special code edtech50 to get 50% off your ticket. Not only will you get a chance to connect with professionals like yourself who are transforming learning, but you'll also hear from Graham Brown Martin, author and broadcaster of Learning Reimagined and founder of Learning Without Frontiers. Again, registration is at sfdc.co forward slash horizons 2019 using the special code edtech50 to get 50% off the ticket. And all details are available via our show notes for this episode at the edtechpodcast.com. Okay, let's go. Welcome back to the EdTech Podcast, the show where we aim to improve the dialogue between ed and tech for better innovation and impact. Thank you for being patient as we took a short break over the summer and prepared for our next season. This week, we throw back to a second recording from this year's WISE Summit in Paris. In this episode, you'll hear from two speakers, Heidi Hayu Lukanen, professor at Nord University, and angel investor Khaled Helio. Both speak on the topic of the future of learning. We look at the impact of genetic disposition and geographic lotteries on learning, on the double-edged sword of international rankings, and the problem with coercion as the basis for learning. We also explore how to measure impact without creating norms and exclusivity. Professor Heidi Hayu Lukanen holds a PhD in education, a special education teacher qualification and a qualification in leadership and management from Finland. She has published more than 100 international books, journals, articles and reports, as well as worked in more than 25 projects globally. 
Hayu Lukanen has worked at top-ranked universities in the USA like UCLA, USC, as well as in many Nordic research universities. She's developed education programs for universities, been a PI of PISA assessments in Finland and functioned as board professional. Her research areas are early childhood education, justice and education and international student assessment. Khalid Helio is an active angel investor, having backed mission-driven startups such as Uber, the first European investor to do so, Deliveroo, Student.com, Weir Labs, Soldo, Upgraded, Yumi or Bolt. He was previously the CEO of BigPoint, the largest gaming company in Germany, with over 500 employees and 400 million registered players, of which he led the turnaround and subsequent sale to Yuzu Interactive. Khalid is Tunisian French, an engineer by trade and an active promoter of entrepreneurship as a driver of economic and social development, notably in Tunisia, where he acts as a mentor and a coach for entrepreneurs and students. He is a United Nations digital leader. I hope you very much enjoy this discussion and the well-informed audience questions that follow. If you're listening around the world, let us know by dropping us a voicemail for our next episode via speakpipe.com forward slash the EdTech podcast or via Twitter at podcast EdTech. Have a great week and a great term. Let's go. So we talked a lot there, uh, Khaled, this, this question's uh, for you to start with. We talked a lot there about the importance of bringing the humanities into uh, you know, our education, bringing them back in where perhaps they've been slightly sidelined to date. What's the role of investment in this and, and what are the kind of market forces that might mean that you know, there's a lot of investment at the moment in, in STEM, for example. How do we make sure that uh, we're investing in all the things that are, are kind of relevant for the future of education? I think that's there's definitely been a coming of age of like a realization like it was touched upon like on the last discussion that like the hard skills and like just getting know how to code uh, in the right manner or figuring out a good business model is actually necessary but it's not sufficient and I think like the reality is like technology is like pervasive and has taken over like a big part of our lives and we realize that actually just being successful from a financial standpoint uh, can also have very dire consequences in society. Technology can be empowering, but it can also be alienating. Mm -hmm. And so what you see right now, and definitely in Europe, but also to a certain extent in, in the valleys, like there's definitely be like more of a focus in terms of actually what culture and what values you actually set in your organization. And basically like in terms of like the people that you recruit, so that not on, you're not only focusing on the financial returns that you're going to get, but this, this also like the second and third order degree of consequences to society that you have. So in reality, I would love to say that it's the case everywhere. Uh, practically, it still has long ways to go, especially in the valley where, honestly, everything is going to be determined by the financial returns that you get and also like the level of uh, the certainty that you're going to get in delivering the returns that your LPs have basically put in your fund. More than enough uh, right now is basically chasing growth at all costs. But I definitely see that we see more um, accountability coming right now in the sense that some of these companies that have been extremely financially successful also paying the backlash of the consequences that they've had on society. We've seen so talking about your Facebooks and so on. Indeed, absolutely. And I think that right now you see these companies are having a harder time hiring 
they're having a harder time like retaining uh, employees because it's uh, it's becoming more difficult for them to actually tell the challenge that actually connecting the world where they may have been like a reason why they've been deconstructing the social fabric of democracies. I mean, that's quite interesting because uh, there was a, a, the founder of Ecole 42 at the drinks yesterday evening and he was talking about his new venture um, which will kind of roll out what they're doing um, but change the, the business model slightly so it's more around, um, I think they take 60% of, I wasn't sure if it was earnings when, when the people graduate, but um, the, the point is that you know they are getting higher earnings I think they get paid whilst they learn and um, perhaps that's something about tapping into uh, whether it's the millennial or the next generation's kind of aspirations are more um, sort of socially minded as well I think there's also another aspect to this one and um, as well the Finnish government uh, has uh, created a law uh, that you're not allowed to make money so to say with education and uh, so there's no private schools in that sense, so which blocks a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the sort of companies working inside of Finland. And, and uh, as we've heard already today, there's always this sort of other side that we might see a, a larger um, gap between our students because there's always a huge amount of students that don't have the access to gadgets and, and don't have the access to different type of of tools in order to learn. And, you know, we're talking about change and creating the future of learning. So um, one of the points today was around, you know, what's the role of international league tables, as it were, or, you know, rankings. And we had the, um, we had Andreas Schleicher here on the, the last session, but um, I, as I understand it, you, you've had a role in that. So perhaps what's your opinion on, on PISA and how that can actually act as a lever for change as well? Yes, uh, I've been worked in the, uh, working in the Finnish PISA team since 2000, around 2006, I think. And, um, well, it's a double sword, I would say, in, in, um, in many ways. Everybody who is involved in the PISA assessments or other international assessments really know how little we can know <laughs> through the assessments. And at the same time, we know... Uh, we get a lot of information that we didn't have previously. So, for instance, in Finland, um, we had a huge immigration wave after the Syrian refugee uh, wave uh, in Europe. And um, we decided, or the Ministry of Education decided to take an oversample uh, of our students with an immigrant background in, the, in PISA, because we really didn't know how our students with an immigrant background were doing in Finland. And Finland is, as you know, many times labeled as the best education or the superpower of education. And it turned out, I was in, in charge of, of this assessment, and it turned out that our students with an immigrant background are lagging two years behind the students that doesn't have an immigrant background. And, uh, and I think here we can find some power with these type of international tools. They tell us a lot uh, of information. They tell us a lot about things that we didn't know that exist mm -hmm. and that we didn't ask. And uh, yeah, so it, it can be a powerful sort of tool uh, towards um, a change. But at the same time, for instance, policymakers very often use the PISA teams, PEARLS and other international assessments for their own uh, agendas, so to say. and. Uh, and so there's a communications piece there as well, isn't it? Because people jump on it and say, you know, Finland's amazing, and there's yeah. it, they don't dig into the fact that there's a gap between oh, we have a lot of work and 
you know, and then the results and how long uh, the gap is between. Um, one of the questions today was about how we um, kind of foster learning. Um, and as I understand it, there's, you know, the piece around how important it is to for uh, children and adults to interact at a young age. Um, and, you know, one company I spoke to this week is called Oya Labs, and they use natural language processing to put a device not unlike an Alexa or Google Home in the house and listen into children's interacting uh, with their parents and kind of basically assess to what extent is this quality interaction and then try and prompt further interaction. Um, what are your thoughts both on, on things like that and have you seen other interesting uh, kind of educational technology innovations uh, that you think would be useful to fostering learning? I think it's interesting. I think like we just need to be cautious not to throw the baby with the water. I think that sometimes like what I think one of the biggest hindrances to learning is actually a control, is centralization, it's norms. And I think like like trying to assess too much and control too much like the development of a child or like of a student actually can defeat the purpose. I think also the other chance we're talking about a lot about like how technology can enhance uh, learning and can be broad innovation. I think we forget that some of the most necessary innovation is not a technology innovation. Mm -hmm. It's an innovation of business model. It's an innovation of incentives and providing like there is there is so much more that we could do to increase the level of le learning and not just like in terms of like enhance or like tailor and personalize, but broaden the access of the learning that you have right now. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have is the fact that of the rigidity of the existing systems, of the fact that you have very uh, constrained system that if you don't if you don't meet like the basic levels, you have to be available from X hour to Y hour. Mm -hmm. You have to follow exactly the codes and the norms that we have set up. You basically don't feed the system, and there go you get directed to a career that you're going to have to follow for the rest of your lives. Well, you know what? People don't want that. And actually, the reality there is so much talent that is available, but that doesn't get that first opportunity, which I th see like as a big issue in Finland is. I mean, you may have like the, the ethics of conviction that basically education should be a public good available to everyone. The reality, it is constrained to a very specific set of people. And if you win the geographic lottery or like the wealth lottery, you're going to have access mm -hmm. to it. The reality, a big part of the population is being completely left out mm -hmm. and is being completely ignored. So being able to come up with a business model with a financial incentive that allows to bring in some of these people and make some money out of that in order to scale it, I'm all for it because I'd be, I'd be very happy to be told that I'm a financial investor, that I want to make money. If at the end of the day, this money has been made and allowed to teach millions of students and companies like Open Classroom or Labden School are doing it right now, I'd be very happy to be the scapegoat of that. You, you can uh, sleep well at night. <laughs> oh, perfect. Um, uh, well, we heard previously about the university's sort of responsibility um, in, in these type of sort of... Um, new in innovations on the on this uh, on this educational scenery and in my role i have uh, assessed uh, multiple uh, startup sort of innovations on the educational scenery and honestly i must say that only a few of them are those type of where i would personally invest my money into uh, so for instance this google you know this talking, mm -hmm. you know device collecting information on how I'm, I'm interacting with my children. I could just throw it out of the window. I have three daughters, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know how much quality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I understand correctly, you, you've invested in Uber. Is that right? Yeah. 
So th this is quite interesting because quite a lot of people at EdTech events, they, they start to talk about, oh, but it's the Uber of education or it's the Airbnb of education or EdTech is the new FinTech. And it sort of drives me crazy a little bit because, um, you know, really it's much more complicated. As you say, it's, you know, it, it does take a lot of time for companies to do well. It, it's, it's very difficult out there. Um, so yeah, I mean, fr from the point of an investor, what do you see when you're investing in other industries versus the sector of education? I think that, like, notoriously education has been a very difficult sector to invest in for a number of reasons. First, uh, it's deeply regulated, and there's a reason for that. Like, you cannot like do like Facebook, move fast and break things when you're talking about the education of your children. Nobody wants to break the education of the children, and rightfully so. It's been heavily regulated. It's been very difficult to find business models that are sustainable and scalable. Like because most of the time, like education companies were selling to governments or universities with basically level of funding that have been going down and sales cycles that have been very long. And so historically, they have been struggling to basically get there. That has changed. Like if you see like over the last three years, you have a number of fundings with new models that have evolved. Like we mentioned Open Classroom, which is an digital and like online education platform that really teaches students, six million students on a yearly basis with a lot of like free content that is available to everyone, but also like degrees that take six to 12 months with a guarantee of employment down the line. You have the extreme version of that that has been started in the US called Lambda School, where actually the, the teaching is free. You can join this program and basically they get paid with a percentage of the salary that you're going to make down the line. And here that we're getting closer to the Uber of in the sense that it basically confronts the problem with its face. We have massive demand of employment in the tech sector. There is like an incredible shortage of developers, designers and product managers. And at the same time, you have a vast category of people that is unemployed or is stuck in a career that has very little basically development potential with salaries that are lackluster. Like a junior developer in San Francisco gets paid anywhere between $120,000 to $160,000 per year. So basically they bridge the problem by saying we're going to teach these people for free within like three weeks, six weeks, nine weeks, and we're going to get a cut of the salary they make down the line. Ethically speaking, is it perfect? No, I don't feel extremely comfortable with having basically people owing part of the salary they're going to make to an institution. Do I feel better about the fact that the vast people are like unemployed or basically stuck in a career they don't like? No, I feel worse about that. So I think these are the kind of innovations that we can see in education, and I think it's, it's really vital right now. And Heidi, I mean, do you see a, a kind of time in the future, in the near future, where, you know, we could talk about agile schools or agile universities as a, as a kind of mass thing, as a mainstream thing? Um, because, I mean, part of the, the difficulties we were talking about is that, you know, a lot, a lot of this is centralised. So will it just end up being private schools and universities that kind of are running with, you know, what learners actually want? Um, how do we make sure that the, the change is actually something that um, you know, happens in most of our state schools and universities as well? Well, I think uh, one thing is, of course, to have the universities involved. And we can see that already throughout the world, that the universities are uh, having different type of accelerators, hubs, innovation hubs inside the universities and working with the teacher trainers and uh, with the, you know, teachers of the future as well. So I think in, you know, working with the universities would be uh, a very good starting point. And, um, yeah. And in Finland, you're having a, an AI initiative for the general public, is that right? So that I think they're bringing on, is it 10% of the general public are, are learning AI, uh, a sort of basic course, which kind of might help in terms of 
public understanding of some of these issues? Uh, we have in Finland, so that coding is a part of the, the curriculum and it starts from age zero onwards. And so you have in early childhood education uh, coding, which is like more or less sequences. <laughs> and uh, so it's not necessarily coding per se, C++ or so, it's, it's uh, understanding the logic behind it. And it started in an early age. And at the same time, uh, there is a huge investments in, in um, uh, getting iPads into early childhood education, into schools, uh, different type of programs. The government is investing uh, into different uh, possibilities in, in uh, getting different programs. And of course, the books are electronic and so on. Uh, but yes, of course, because we don't have any private schools or very few of them in Finland, it happens uh, in a pace that the government wants it to happen. And we've, we've talked about the, the importance of investment, strategic investment, and, and the kind of changes that some of the schools and universities are going through. Um, but ultimately, a lot of this is, is kind of uh, the influence of um, adults in early education and parents and uh, the community around you. I just wondered for both of you, what was your um, experience of uh, being sort of supported through learning and, and those sort of formative years? Because now you're, you know, you're the ones that are sat on the stage and, and, and kind of uh, you know, experts and talking at this forum. So what was your own earlier uh, experience of learning or formative experience of learning, should I say? Uh, on my side, it was a bit interesting. Uh, like, I think I was confronted with both sides of the season. I, I, grew up, I was born in Tunisia, but I grew up in France. And I was confronted with the, the beautiful side of it, with incredible, motivated, passionate teacher teachers and the extremely ugly side in the sense that I came from Tunisia to France and being an Arabic kid I was put in a class of challenged children uh, because I was deemed to be dumb and stupid and not being able to follow the program of other kids. But thankfully, thank God, I had an incredible teacher uh, that saw potential in me and spoke to my parents and allowed me to get me transferred and be, basically have an education that allowed me to come here. But I think even though I didn't win the geographic lottery that way, I won a bit of the genetic one where I had some good predispositions in mathematics and physics, which was not the case of a number of my friends which didn't follow a path uh, that was as uh, autonomous and allowed them to determine who they were going to be. So the reality, I think there are incredible things in our education systems. And I think there's more to be taught and to learn than just like STEM and like good level of mathematics and physics or how to make money. And we should not lose that. But I think we really need to look hard in the face of the real problems that we have and that our convictions are not meeting the test of the responsibility of the societies we live in that have inherent level of inequality and like basically a door that is impossible to breach for a number of people. And I think we need to open the doors of innovation outside to the private world and come up with models that can be empowering, make money and yet be actually inclusive and really allow for accessibility to these forms of learning. I, on my other hand, um, I won in the geographic lottery. I was born and raised in Finland. And um, I have probably zero single bad words to say about the Finnish education system because it was built, uh, well, the, gr the grand pillars of the, of the system was built when I went into school. And um, my father is a car salesman and my mother is a cleaning lady. And uh, in Finland, it is said that you never know who's the next Einstein. <laughs> so everybody is educated and everybody has equal uh, potential. And uh, of course, when I've, I've been a parent in the United States as well, living there uh, for several years, I've seen the other side as well, uh, not equal opportunities. So I'm extremely lucky that I had those opportunities in Finland with zero student depth 
when I graduated from the university with a PhD in my back pocket. And I was completely, um, when we moved to the United States, uh, I was able to compete on a completely different line than many of my colleagues uh, were able to do. Okay, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, let's go to some questions. So who would like to jump in? We'll do the same thing. We'll have three questions and uh, ask those in one go. We've got one here. Well, in France and in Morocco, I have witnessed a deconstruction, not to say a destruction, of uh, the uh, education system uh, that is at the level of uh, the uh, government and I understand there's going to be a lot of private investment in national education which obviously is an important factor worldwide and I must say that uh, I don't quite see how we will be able to move from something which uh, was in the uh, public interest to something which uh, hinges on private interests and I see those who are uh, really interested in a predator sort of way, interested in our children therefore and humankind. So I, I, I have many question marks and yet I feel hopeful uh, and optimistic without being totally naive regarding the economic interests that might be vested in this. So how do we prevent private investment in education becoming a dystopia? I think that's been... <laughs> it's I think extreme. That, I think that's one of the... The reality, like the concerns are valid and they're important. The reality is like, as I, as I hinted on earlier, the level of responsibilities when you're dealing with people's like uh, educational people's house, for instance, like that's much bigger than when you're just doing like selling goods or like basically managing transport. The, the reality, I think there's one illusional bubble that we need to break is the equation or the, cause, the correlation between public being good and private being bad. I'm not saying that private is always good. There's definitely a lot of bad things in the private side. There's a lot of ugly things on the public front. I think in general, I, I rarely believe, we, we talk, we keep stressing, we keep insisting that innovation is important. Innovation doesn't thrive when it's centralized and when it's controlled by one entity. The reality, like if you had to do tests and like try many things, would you want it to happen in only one place, in one city or controlled by one entity? I don't think so. And the reality, it is not working. It is not working. Like people, we've never reached a state like from a societal standpoint where so many, such a high percentage of the kids feel they're not going to have as good a life as their parents. In the United States, it's the biggest crisis that they've ever seen. There's 166 trillion billion dollars of student debt, most of it being delinquent. I think the reality, there needs to be innovation. We need to try more, but we just need to be extremely careful about like the accountability that private institutions have and making sure that not everything can be done and that the government and the public, state, civil societies also like stay on top of things, but I think we need to open the doors a bit more. Uh, I think on my other, I completely agree with you. It's an interesting question. And um, how I see it that our teachers need to have the autonomy uh, in the classrooms to decide what is important uh, to teach and what is important to educate in this classroom. And with the um, sort of with the um, responsibility uh, comes also, uh, or the autonomy comes also the responsibility of the teachers. So that the teachers, in, in Finland for instance, if my teacher, uh, if my students are not um, doing fine, I'm the responsible for that one. 
and I have not been able to sort of find the right type of pedagogical, didactical solutions in order for them to thrive in the education. And when it comes to sort of um, other technological tools that are taken into the classroom, uh, I think the teachers need to be those ones in the forefront who decide uh, which one will work in this environment and which, will, which ones won't work. And I think, you know, uh, coming in from ab above, you know, somebody selling the teachers that, you know, you need to use this tool or you need to use this one and so on. It's not going to work and it's not going to be effective in the classroom. And I've been working for a teacher for more than 10 years and I love technology. <laughs> it is an interesting one though, isn't it? Because you mentioned, you know, coming uh, here from Tunisia and being put in the class, but, you know, equally so, if an algorithm is developed by a certain type of person with their own biases, um, you know, say pro probably Western, maybe Californian, uh, it could equ it equally happen in that way if, you know, it sort of picks up. So we have to be careful that just because it's technology, it doesn't just replicate the same issues we have in, in the kind of offline world. Absolutely. I don't think technology is good in itself. I think the challenge is so far you've only had one shot, which was your class. Mm -hmm. And the reality, if you fail that, your life was pretty much over. And that cannot be the case. I'm not saying that actually all algorithms are good, technology are good, no, technology can be bad, but I think we need to multiply the chances. And it is happening. Like for instance, like in open class, I'm giving an example, like I just saw like the D December report, there was like Anais who was like a 27 year old uh, school dropout who was working as a cashier. She basically took a maternity leave and took over 40 courses in, in developing. And she basically got a tech, uh, basically she's become a tech worker, she's gonna get a master's degree in less than two years. How often did you see that people going back to schools and finding a way in? The reality... I need to interview her for the podcast. 100%. Sounds amazing. Yeah, no. It, it is happening. They're all like innovation and change is happening and, and the reality, a lot of it is happening on the private side. And there are also other options when you're talking about adult learning and so on. We have open universities, we have online universities. So there are plenty of opportunities for people to do in faster paces their master's degrees or doctor's degrees or whatever. So there are already options. Okay, do we have any further questions? We've got two, three at the back, so we'll take all three. Yeah, okay, uh, right. Uh, I'm coming from the Ministry of Education in Azerbaijan. It's a small country in Caucasus, and um, actually I've been with the Ministry for only less than two years, and ahead of that I've spent uh, 12 years in the corporate sector. And that was mainly oil and gas industries. That's been uh, BP, which is a British company. That's been uh, Schlumberger, which is a French oil field services company. And then I moved, uh, and Azerbaijan is an oil and gas uh, rich country. So this is the most developed sector at the moment. So I've got an invitation to join the ministry. And what I'm saying is for a couple of uh, for, for two years now, I'm walk, basically traveling around the world because I'm in charge of the innovations in the education. And I'm meeting with a lot of people at the events like this. And what struck me just earlier today is seems like a lot of things happening in education is really is reinventing the wheel. Because from my experience of big corporate organizations, um, uh, the ones I named and uh, some others, a lot of things in advanced education and life uh, long learning has been put in place in these organizations to get to their competitive advantage uh, and, uh, over other companies in the market. And there is a lot of corporate collaboration between the universities, business schools uh, and MIT type of schools at the corporate level for the people beyond 30 
But when we're thinking of K-12 education or uh, postgraduate education, uh, undergraduate education, uh, we, I think like teacher, if we take in two bus, if we take two separate um, kind of uh, groups, teachers at K-12 level, for instance, and corporate segment, uh, there is no almost no connection I've seen in any country across the world. So my question is. Uh, what is your experience and what are your thoughts about basically not reinventing the wheel and thinking uh, how to do things, but basically connecting, make the big corporations um, also responsible uh, to share their best practices, to share their systems, their ecosystems for learning and development with, uh, our, with public education organizations. And that might be uh, some sort of solution. Thank you. Um, well, I have one point on that before I go to the panelists, which is um, maybe organizations will just go and do that themselves. So speaking this week with a company that um, once Tesla cars are off the manufacturing line, they're CAT scanning them, so doing like a, a kind of complete scan of them, and then uh, modeling all of their parts so that uh, engineering students can actually now use CAD design work, but with real cars and kind of manipulate and... Uh, you know, I'm not sure how pleased Tesla is about this, but that's kind of their application of the technology. But um. yes, uh, and a very interesting question. And uh, there are already in place. Uh, you know, there's uh, practical training periods for for uh, for students that they can be that can be done in different companies. And you know, students can go and you know, schools can work together with the. Uh, with the companies like this, but of course there's always a challenge uh, when it comes to corporates and when you're collab uh, collaborating uh, with schools, because then we're talking about issues connected to equality, uh, that uh, does all of the students have the equal opportunities into these type of gadgets or designing car parts or whatever they have there. So uh, I think here uh, there should be a guidance from the, from the government sector as well. Uh, because otherwise we will have areas with, uh, with a lot of different type of tools in the schools and, and some other areas we might not have them. I think what I've heard as well from new universities that are setting up in the UK is that in the initial period all of the industry partners are very excited. So you might start off with like 40 and then when it comes down to it you might end up with 10 that are like really committed. So I guess it's trying to find those you know, partners that are actually serious about you know, their commitment. Um, was there another question? Yep. We have two, so we'll, we'll take both of those. Thank you. Uh, I, I heard a lot and read a lot about the fin uh, Finnish model of education, and it's really a great example. My question is, uh, a, is it possible to replicate, or has any research been done to replicate the Finnish model in societies which are ethnically heterogeneous, number one? Or where the, the interests of the ruling regime are not harmonious with the interests of the broader uh, society. And, and, and um, uh, the societies could be large or small, but there may be a disharmony of interest, for example, in, in a smaller societies between the ruling elite and the... So I'm just wondering if you have given any thought uh, to, to these... Uh, Absolutely. It's an easy, given a lot easy, of easy question to ask. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for your question. Uh, the thing is that there is already, um, well, uh, firstly, it's an impossibility to replicate 
education system and take it to another country and to another context. That's, uh, that's how I see it. But we can take some parts of it. And uh, we have companies, startup companies in Finland, for instance, that are uh, taking uh, their um, sort of the, the ideas the, of early childhood education, uh, playful learning uh, and so on to Brazil, for instance, and adapting it to their curriculum, teaching their teachers and so on. So you need to do it in a larger scale and not only, uh, so you have to work with the ministry, ministries of the country, uh, design the curriculums and make sure it sort of fits in uh, to the country's contexts. Bonjour, je suis... Good morning, I'm Ernesto from uh, Salvador in Central America. Now, I feel there's something which is really interesting when you talk about the future of education. I used to teach uh, technology. I've been doing that for the past five years in a French uh, school. And my situation was a little out of the ordinary because uh, I realized that I was allergic in a way. I just couldn't stand uh, the um, basic uh, set of... Uh, the subjects that need to be taught to all the students uh, because I felt that that really stifled these young people's uh, creativity. Uh, the things, the attempt is to overly harmonize things. Uh, the idea being to educate people. So I suppose the question is, you know, how do we um, move to a more personalized way of learning that doesn't stifle some people whilst you know absolutely other people back uh, I see that we really need to stop uh, feeding information into blocks for our students and that's the starting point and uh, the information needs to be connected and it needs to be uh, sort of I need to be in the center of my learning because I need to connect the the dots in my head so to say so yes, there's a lot to do on these, uh, on these aspects, uh, but as we can see uh, throughout the world, uh, as Andrea has already um, explained in the previous chat, uh, that uh, a lot of the countries are moving towards more uh, sort of student-based learning, uh, problem-based learning, and where you have a previous chat as well talked about the T sort of learning shape where you have a deep understanding and then with, for instance, different projects or so, you uh, put the different dots together or different area, subject areas? I think it's a tricky question. I think it's a tricky topic. Like, I think that my personal belief is that coercion is really one of the best ways to hinder learning and hinder creativity. When you tell people you have to learn this, it's the best way to get a lot of them out, especially if you think like people, creative people, like entrepreneurial people. But you also face the challenge that like schools have an obligation to get like a certain level of proficiency in a number of very important subject matters. I mean, you imagine you set up like a problem-solving environment, but like 90% of your class get out of it with zero understanding of arithmetics or calculus. That's a deep problem. I think we, we're facing the issue that we've been too long focused on a one-size-fits-all approach. There's actually, it's actually, we need to teach all of these subject matters and we need to reach a certain level of proficiency, which is why I'm also very cautious with the norms, because the norms are supposed to be like a way to make sure that you follow a certain level and you reach a certain level, but it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy where people focus more on the norms that actually the end result that they're supposed to reach, that people get educated and become self-deterministic. I think we need to see more of a solvent problem approach on top of the subject matter teaching. I think I'd be cautious of having either one being exclusive. 
I think if you just take a solver programming approach, you're going to have an incredible environment for very creative people and teach an amazing, basically like teach amazing entrepreneurs. They're going to have no coders to basically work for them or with them. And I think that we need to take like I think both approach. I think like innovation is really important, but it's important that we keep what is working very well as well. So I think if you can come up with an environment that you get a certain level of proficiency in very important subject matters, but also allow to have students take ownership of their own learning and have them motivated not only to get a grade, but to solve issues that they actually can relate with, we can come up with amazing results. Okay, we've got an extra question down here. First of all, thank you for your inspiring speeches. Um, I have two questions, maybe in one, but what is for you the importance of early child education? Because we, we talk about the future of learning, and I don't know if you are aware about this, but the French government make mandatory the um, learning, like the, the school between three and six years old in France, like it's all new. Um, and also, what is the, the place of the research within the school? Because I, I, I believe that we can improve education by also linking research, uh, design process, research process, scientific and not scientists, um, families, caregivers, researchers, health uh, professionals, and you know what I mean? Like how we can um, improve that? Like how we can um, make better education by placing the research at the heart of the school and also how we can improve the early child education. Yes. Questions. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, you so much for bringing in front the early childhood education. I just happen to be a professor in early childhood education as well. <laughs> and uh, we just came out with a book on, on, uh, on early childhood education in 21st century where we have the systems of 21 countries uh, explained uh, in the book and the different approaches to early childhood education. But we know that if we invest one dollar into early childhood education, we get six dollars back later on. Uh, and which also means that the early childhood education is one of the most important times during your life and therefore those teachers teaching you should be on a high level. They should be well paid uh, as well as uh, having the knowledge and skills from a university level. And when it comes to the, universe, uh, to the research uh, that is done in the schools, I think the teachers need to have in schools high enough of a level sort of a research-based education in the universities. They are unable to teach critical thinking to our students if they don't know how the critical thinking, or if they don't know critical thinking themselves. And um, so teachers are researchers as well in their own work. Oh, sorry. How does it work in uh, Finland? Like the um, the school system starts at six or seven, or it starts before? Uh, it's it starts at six, preschool at six, and se and then in seven to to a real school. The real school. Okay, it's kindergarten before. Thank you. I mean, it's an interesting one on the research because uh, they were talking about this on the other stage as well. Um, but it's on the one hand making sure we're abreast of all the research, but then on the other, the reality of school and policy changes. And, you know, if we if we implemented everything, then uh, it's incredibly stressful for the people that are trying to, like, manage new styles of, of uh, teaching all the time. So it's, it's kind of how do we make that process as easy as possible? And, uh, you know, this, perhaps in Singapore, they have that time to actually reflect and, uh, you know, develop their practice. So... 
yes, I could, if I could continue yeah. the idea on that one, so that um, I see it is extremely important that the policies and uh, policymakers in each and every country understands their responsibility, because if the policies are not good, the practice will also fail. Uh, so that, uh, for instance, let's take the collaboration with the parents, which is very close to my heart since I've been uh, the president of the parental organization in Finland. And uh, if there aren't um, sort of... Um, the collaboration is sort of optional, not written into the curriculums and written into the, into the, um, uh, to the law, whatever, uh, steering documents. It's optional uh, for the schools to do that. And, uh, if it's optional, it won't happen. No, that? absolutely. <laughs> Would you do it? No. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. an extra sort of. And of course, you should see also the benefit of, of doing it. But I need. I I would like to see stronger steering documents in in many many countries throughout the world. It's interesting because you know I I think it's an absolute outrage that um, early years practitioners get. Well, certainly in the UK, they get paid hardly anything at all. But it's also reflected in the wider investment in edtech in uh, in early years. You know, outside of China, it's it's kind of uh, you know it's a bit like the over 60s at the other end. It's just not uh, invested in the same numbers. Uh, what's your thought on that? Is that a scale issue? Is it? A I think like that that relates to the problem that we have in the current society that we have, unfortunately. The reality capital follows yield and follow like basically returns. I think we have yet to find models where we can actually justify this. But it's also like a question of political courage. It's also about like political leaders really making a point and making it a priority. And we have a ways to enforce that. We just have to ask for it. At least in democratic societies, you can actually claim and basically push. But I agree there is massive underinvestment in that space. I think there is also a lot of like uh, lack of understanding from political leaders of how important and how critical it is. And it's also like a challenge of like a number of societies who are cutting down budget, budgets in public investments. And so asking for more investment in that aspect, which is the reality, like the, the longer it's going to take to have like a, an economic return is also like an issue for a number of these governments. I think it's the reason behind it. And Heidi, what was the name of your book again? Quick plug. That's a good question. So I've published so many, so <laughs> I've already in the pipeline, I think two or three. It's something like uh, early childhood education in the 21st century. <laughs> I love it. Don't um, even have a title yet. Maybe we should come up oh, with that for oh, the end of yeah, the Yeah, it's, it's already out there, but I can't okay. remember. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, Ed, we've got 30 seconds for a final question, if anyone wants to be super quick. Uh, if not, uh, please give a round of applause to our lovely panellists today. Um, so thank you very much for listening and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you're feeling like it, we'd love a few more rates and reviews to let other people know about what we're up to. If you're listening in and planning your events calendar for this year, there are many events coming up in September. Um, in the UK, we've got the Association for Learning Technologies annual conference in September. The Time Tire Ed World Academic Summit, uh, Guess Indonesia, Dare to Learn in Finland, um, Didac India, uh, the World Futures Forum, uh, some events from Tomorrow Institute, and then further on into October, uh, there's the OPI Festival, uh, Educator Investor UK Summit, um, the Close It Summit in the States. In November, there is uh, the Battle of Ideas, WISE 2019, the Association of Colleges Annual Conference, 
the Voctec Showcase, the Times Higher Ed Awards. Um, and then in December, we will also be at um, the Reimagine Education Conference and Awards. Um, so for all of your events organising needs, go to the edtechpodcast.com forward slash events. Um, and you can see what's coming up and uh, take a look in our aggregated calendar.